We are on our third part of this series, uh, Engaging the Bridegroom and Song of Solomon. You should have two uh, little outlines in front of you. One says, Eight Faces of Jesus and the Song of Solomon. That is for your own personal study. You can look at that later. Just a little uh, addition, a little addendum to today's teaching. And then the other one says, chapter 1, spiritual desire and crisis. That's what we're going to go through this morning. We're just going to begin to uh, walk through the storyline over the next few weeks. Um, I wanted to take a little extra time on chapter 1, so we're going to devote a whole um, message to just chapter 1. There's so much that is in chapter 1 that lays the foundation for the rest of the book. Uh, It's just important to try to pause a little bit in chapter 1. So we've introduced some of the key concepts and the theme of the book over the last few weeks, just kind of laid out the construct. And we've talked about what the book is for us. It's an allegory that we're looking at and we're drawing truths from. And the truths that we draw are all truths that are laid out in the rest of the body of Scripture. We're not, not coming up with new thoughts from an allegorical study. But we're, we're identifying these truths and seeing how the language in Song of Solomon really enriches them and brings them to the surface for us. And so uh, that's been our approach. That's what we've ta- talked about the last few weeks. And then today what we're going to do, as I said, we're going to move through chapter 1. So let's go ahead and take a look at Roman numeral 1. I'm not going to go verse by verse, though we're going to cover most of chapter 1. I won't go verse by verse in the rest of our study. There are many... Um, Things available online where you can go verse by verse. You can get a a number of commentaries. There's all sorts of writing if you wanted to go verse by verse. Even our class that we offer, we offer it, I think, once every couple years on Song of Solomon. Uh, Look for that. That's a verse by verse study where we just go one after another. We're going to touch the high points uh, over the next few weeks of the whole book. Okay, let's look at this. Uh, Roman numeral one, introduction to the maiden. Now, again, we have three key characters. We have the the maiden, we have the bridegroom, and then we have the daughters of Jerusalem. And I attached that at the end of uh, last week's supplement. And just want to again mention, when we look at the book, the way that we're looking at it, we see the maiden as representative of the body of Christ and us individually. We actually look at uh, how this applies to our, our lives individually with Jesus And he's the bridegroom. So the second character is the bridegroom. That's Jesus. We represent the maiden. And then the daughters of Jerusalem. The daughters of Jerusalem is the third kind of group that's in the mix. And you'll see them comment from time to time. They don't represent particularly a specific person or a specific group in the body of Christ. They kind of represent all of us at different times. And what they really represent is that group that's sort of at times standing on the outside looking in, in that place of sort of, you know, am I going to go after God or am I not? You kind of get the Daughters of Jerusalem, sort of this, this peanut gallery on the side that comments into the storyline. At times, we're the Daughters of Jerusalem. If you think about your own walk with Jesus, at times you've been sort of standing on the outside looking in. Uh, and so what you see is sort of this, this voice of the group that's trying to decide if they're going to go hard after the Lord or not, the daughters of Jerusalem. They're sort of standing around and they're watching the journey of the maiden and deciding, based on her life, what they'll do with Jesus. And so uh, I think at times I've been very much a daughter of Jerusalem, and, and I think we all 
can step, uh, see ourselves in that role at times. So we have that, they're that third player. Okay, let, we're introduced to the maiden, Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 2. She says this uh, phrase that really is very much setting the table for the first four chapters. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Now, when we're looking at this as an allegory, the kisses of his mouth, no one is to take that phrase and go, man, I just want Jesus just to lay one on me, just to pucker up and just give me a smoocheroo. That's not what this is about. Again, it's an allegory. So, it's figurative language. The kisses of his mouth for thousands of years, uh, the, the rabbis that would interpret this, they would, they would say that's the kisses of his word. It's the impartation of revelation that hits the heart through the word of God. When revelation hits the heart, it's Jesus revealing truth to us. It's the kisses of his word. It's the Lord releasing light to our hearts. So we actually encourage all of our singers and musicians when they're singing through Song of Solomon to actually use kisses of his word. Use that language. And, uh, and so that way there's not this confusion as to what we're talking about. But the kisses of his word, it's when the Lord breathes revelation on our heart and our heart begins to explode and come alive. I've talked about the spirit of revelation uh, many, many, many times. We pray for the spirit of revelation in the house of prayer all the time. From Ephesians 1, release the spirit of wisdom and revelation. We pray that for this community. We pray it for the church all over our city and all across our nation. It's the key and most valuable gift that we can receive from God. When God reveals God to us, it's the most valuable thing you can possibly receive. Think about it. God, the most valuable one, revealing more about himself to us or clarifying or, or you know, becoming more vivid to us. When God reveals God to us, it's the most valuable gift you can receive from heaven. And so when we pray and we see this in the word, kiss me with the kisses of your word, man, we're recognizing we're going right to the riches of who he is. We're saying, God, reveal yourself to me. What a powerful prayer that we would live our lives asking for God to sort of uncork spiritual revelation to us. This is where she's at. She is a person who is desirous of encountering the Lord. She wants to experience revelation. When we experience the spirit of revelation, it brings, uh, uh, it brings life. It brings light. It, 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 you know, we live full and alive, and our perspective radically changes. I'll just say this. When I live distant from the word, I mean, I might be reading it, but when I live distant from a spirit of revelation on the word, everything looks different. It looks dim. Have you ever noticed that? How life can seem so uh, problematic, so difficult, particularly how we look at challenges. Challenges look enormous. Everything looks just impossible. Difficulties look enormous when, when we're not looking at them through the revelation of who God is and through the light of the word of God. And I'm so uh, uh, aware 
that when the spirit of revelation comes on me, when I begin to see the scripture, certainly this happens. You read the, the scripture for the, the thousandth time and all of a sudden, boom, light comes on. You go, wow, that's amazing. But the other feature is just how different everything else looks. All the, the details of life, they look so different when we have the spirit of revelation. When I, when I begin to think, man, this is hard, this is too difficult, this is beyond, I, I recognize what's going on with me. I don't have the spirit of revelation and the knowledge of him. I'm lacking the kisses of his word. Amen. And that is a critical place to realize when you start seeing problems as huge and God is small, I promise you, compared to God, the problems are never huge. That means everything's out of whack. we got to see him the way he is. And that's what the kisses of his word are about. They're about seeing him as he is and allowing him to portray himself through the scripture so our heart comes alive. So that's where she's at. She's asking the father for revelation of the son. She's longing and desiring an encounter of revelation. Beloved, this is not something we're supposed to graduate from. This is supposed to be the normal posture of our lives all the time. Lord, Father, I'm asking, release the spirit of revelation to me. I want to encounter Jesus. I want to see him as he is. I desire light to come on my heart. Lord, release revelation to me. Let me see you as you are. I'm hungry to know you as you are. I don't want to be dim. And this is where she starts. And she says this next phrase. Your love is better than wine. Your love is better than wine. Later, as we're going through this, we'll find another phrase. He's the fairest of 10,000. So there's two things that this book describes. Number one, it says his love is better than wine and he's fairer than the sons of men. He's the fairest of 10,000, which means this. Jesus' love is the highest experience of pleasure we can ever experience and Jesus is the most beautiful one there is. Now, She starts there going, I need the kisses of revelation because I need to know the reality of the love of God. That it's better than any worldly thing, anything the world can offer me. His love is better than wine. Wine represents all the pleasures of the world. She's saying, I need to know love that surpasses all these other pleasures. And I'll just tell you, the way that this works, the way that we put this into practice in our life, is in prayer. If the teaching doesn't translate into communication and dialogue between you and God, we've sort of missed the point of the teaching. It's not so that you necessarily leave here feeling good. I mean, I hope you like the teaching this morning. I hope it makes you feel good. Sometimes teaching doesn't make you feel good. It's not always geared to make you feel good. It's geared to take you into dialogue. That's what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to take you into dialogue that then transforms how you live 24 hours a day, seven days a week, not just make you feel good for 45 minutes. So what we do is we take these truths and we move them into dialogue. Your love is better than wine. Your love is better than wine. And I remember first coming into contact with that truth and the you are fairer than the sons of men. You're fairest of 10,000. And asking the Lord 
I, I, you know, saying, I don't think I believe this. Like just coming nitty-gritty down, just plain, main and plain. I don't believe, number one, that the love of God is the greatest experience that I can experience. This is after I've been, you know, in ministry 10, 12 years. <laughs> I'm, just being, I'm just being honest with you. I don't know what your inner life is like. This is me. And I would sit before the Lord. I go, I, ne- I need to know love that's better than wine. I, I need to know love that is more pleasurable, more enticing, more alluring than all the things the world is throwing at me. Because if I don't know it like that, I will fall hook, line, and sinker for the other stuff. I mean, I, I, and I would just get real with God. I, I need to know this. I know your word says this, but I need to believe it. I need to know love that's better than wine. And I'd say, kiss me with the kisses of your word so I can know love that's better than wine. So I can know love that intoxicates me so I don't want the intoxications of the world. That's where she's at. She goes, I need to know love that surpasses every other pleasure. And I'll tell you what. When it comes to overcoming habits, sins, uh, negative you know, activity, negative actions, certainly there's the fear of the Lord. Certainly there's the fear of uh, the, the sensation of failure. That, you know, it's ouch, that's a bad thing. If you touch that, it's going to be negative. Certainly there is that. But the, and, and it has a motivating factor. But the, the other side is the issue. In other words, we can't just call people away from sin by going, it's bad, it'll hurt you. Because you know what we do? We go, well, how bad is it going to hurt me? Whoa, that really hurts. I mean, we're, 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 that's how we're, we're, you know, our chemistry is. We're dumb like that. Don't touch that. It'll hurt you. Ow! What did I just tell you? It hurts. I told you it would hurt. You know, we just, we just look around and we just do it anyway just to see. We, we have to know. But, so there's, and then there's a certain repellent on that. You go, man, I don't want to do that again. Ouch. But the other side is, if I go, that will hurt you if you do that. But if you do this, it's a thousand times better. That is nothing compared. I know it looks good, but this, the love of God, is a thousand times better do that, it's so much more exhilarating. If we don't give the positive, they end up finding out how bad the negative is the wrong way, and then maybe they'll stay away from it because it's alluring, but it's you know, painfully bad. But if we don't give the positive, they don't know what to run to. And that's what has to happen with our own heart. This is what it has to boil down to. You can hear me talking about how the love of Jesus is amazing, all this stuff, but it has to boil down to you in a dialogue with Jesus going, I need to know that your love is better than wine. Like, I, I need to believe this. And then the second one is, I need to believe that you're more beautiful than everything else. That you're the one I want to put my eyes on above everything else. And I'll just say it this way. The answer to overcoming lust of the eyes, and particularly in our society, pornography, the answer is a vision of the beauty of God. It is. It's, it's, it's good to know that that's sin, it'll kill you, etc. But it's way better to know that he's more beautiful. 
And I can remember sitting in the earliest days of encountering these truths, just sitting in the, in the prayer room going, God, I need to know that you're more beautiful than everything else. Make it clear to me. I need to believe your love is more alluring than everything else. Make it real to me. And, and for hours, just dialoguing with the Lord about that. Until there was a few times, and it, I mean, it wasn't like angels flew through the room. But it was like a few times when all of a sudden, the value of the beauty of Jesus, it just explodes in my heart. And I go, I don't want to risk fumbling the value of the beauty of who he is by putting my eyes on lesser things. I don't want to value the, the pleasure that I'm feeling in the affirmation of God's love. I don't want, I, I don't want to risk losing that over going after this lesser love. I tell you, the kisses of his word in light of the fact that his love is better than wine, it is a compelling truth that will get you out of bed every morning. It's literally what, what causes me to get out of bed. When everything's difficult, I go, why? And I go, oh, your love, it's better than wine. Your love, I can encounter your love today. I can encounter your love today, and it's better than everything that the world could possibly offer me. Beloved, that, that's who we're to be, a people so in love with Jesus. It's the compelling agent of our heart. That's why Paul described the love of God as a compelling, controlling, constraining reality, a constraining agent to the heart of the believer. Compelling, controlling, and constraining. Your love is better than wine. So she recognizes that, and she's, she's, she's after that. She wants encounter more than anything that the world can offer. She wants him. And then in verse 4, and we talked about verse 4 last week. It's that twofold theme of the entire book. Draw me away, draw me after you, and let us run together. Draw me after you is that, that encounter of intimacy with God and then the let us run after you or let us run together is that partnership with God in, in ministry and, 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 and you know, as, a, as a comparable partner doing what the Lord has in his heart for us. It's that intimate encounter unto partnership and obedience. And that sets up the, the rest of the book. All right. Now, Roman numeral two. This is where her journey begins. And I, I like this because truly when we get saved, we're supposed to begin at that place of spiritual poverty. That's, that's truly where we're supposed to get, begin. Uh, Matthew 5, 3, the poor in spirit shall inherit the kingdom of God. That's the entrance to the kingdom is, is recognizing I'm in need. I am broken and I need him. I don't have anything. I, I need you. And so that's where she starts. She says this, verse 5, I am dark but lovely. Dark speaks of her spiritual state. It speaks of her immaturity and uh, in her immaturity, the propensity for her to make bad choices and sometimes sinful choices. So it's spiritual darkness that speaks of immaturity, which has its propensity in making bad choices and sinful choices. She said, I am dark but lovely. O daughters of Jerusalem, she's talking to the crowd. I am dark but lovely, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. So this is it. This is our process we go through. She starts in spiritual crisis. Many of us came to the Lord in spiritual crisis. 
This is the process of maturity that we begin to go through. Uh, and she is in that journey. And it's a journey that we all traverse. As I've said in, in previous weeks, the way the story unfolds, it has different seasons and different times, different parts of a, of a journey that we're all in together. It defines our journey. You might find yourself in different parts of this journey at different seasons at your, of your life. You might find yourself in a couple of those seasons simultaneously. That can happen where you're you know, you know, in, in one season and in another season simultaneously. It doesn't necessarily all unpack chronologically for every believer. The way that her journey went isn't necessarily how all of ours go. But we'll find ourselves in different parts of this journey of maturity through our whole life. Now, she begins with a revelation of her weaknesses and her sin. And she has, at the same time, the contrast, the revelation of her immaturity and her brokenness But that tension on the inside, there's a a sincere desire for God in her, though she's spiritually mature. Man, I can relate to that. I mean, every bumbling, fumbling move I've made since I've gotten saved. You know, we, we tend to sort of think it this way, and sometimes we hear it preached this way. When you get saved... You're supposed to be holy as he's holy and don't make any mistakes. And you imagine that you're supposed to be perfect. Now, here's the thing. We don't advise people to sin after they get saved. We advise them to get to know Jesus and come out of sin. But everybody steps in it. Everybody makes mistakes. Everybody makes bad choices. Everybody steps into sin. Every believer gets saved, has a heart that wants Jesus... And then simultaneously goofs up and makes bad decisions. Sometimes honest mistakes, sometimes willful choices. But every believer does that. That is the truth of who every single person is. So that this idea about being dark, immature, and still desirable to the Lord is critical for every single believer. Because every believer steps in it at some point. And if you're sitting here and you imagine that you've never stepped in it, we've got a special altar call for you at the end of the service. Because every single person has. And most people, most people get this. Most people get their spiritual darkness. You know, they may not confess it in front of others, but they they would go home and, you know, in a moment of honesty, staring at themselves in the mirror, they go, man, I've got issues. I've got issues. Well, I appreciate the fact that she's honest about it. She's actually talking to the group. She goes, I am dark. Hallelujah. If we could just get there in the church, that would be awesome. Most of the time, how are you doing, brother? Blessed. How are you doing? Blessed. Praise God, glory to God, hallelujah, amen. Glory. Praise God, glory to God, hallelujah, amen. Praise God. Praise God. Did y'all say something? We said we're blessed. And they left. But, you know, that was the whole encounter. How are you doing? Bless, bless. Praise God, glory to God, hallelujah, amen. They walk away. And what have they done? They've got their Christian face on, speaking Christianese, and it's a bunch of bull. <laughs> you know, I mean, sometimes you do feel blessed, praise God, glory to God, hallelujah, amen. I'm happy for that. And I think you should. And then sometimes you just don't. And sometimes you just need to go, man, I'm struggling. Man, I am dark but lovely. Like... Emphasis on dark right now. Like, just pray for me. There needs to be a reality to the truth of who we are. 
And I'm, I, I feel like so many Christians, because there's an improper pressure upon people being like perfect, so many Christians have tried to hide their darkness to their own detriment, I mean, to their own demise. They don't want to say, man, I'm, I'm, I'm rough right now. It's str- I'm struggling. I, I need help. I, I need input. And what they tend to do is they say, I'm blessed, I'm blessed, I'm blessed. But on the inside, they're struggling, they're dark. And then they go and they bottom out and they go, man, what happened to so-and-so? Man, he was blessed when I talked to him last Thursday. Well, I guess, you know, listen, if he fell in it on Friday, he wasn't blessed on Thursday, I promise you. He was feeling his roughness on Thursday, but he was unwilling to share because we don't trust. Because, you know, we have this pressure to be perfect. Look, we're just as full of you know, stuff and challenges as just anybody else. We're just trusting Jesus to take us through a process of maturity that's going to get it up out of us. Amen. So I appreciate she starts with, I'm dark. She goes, I'm dark. And she goes, and I'm working on this point. He says, I'm lovely. I'm dark but lovely. And that's it, beloved. That's Christianity 101. That's Christianity 101 right there. Though you're weak, though you're immature, though you're in a process of growing into, you know, being conformed to the image of Jesus, he still loves you. He's radical about you. He says you're beautiful to him. And we have no idea how much the heart that says yes to Jesus moves Jesus. And how beautiful he says that is. The point isn't to encourage you in your darkness. The point is to encourage you to keep leaning into righteousness and recognize he calls you beautiful in spite of it. And eventually, the heart that has a desire for righteousness, a desire that has a yes on the inside for Jesus, that heart will compel that life into action that's righteous. That's how it goes. The righteous lean on the inside will ultimately translate into righteous actions on the outside. Through the revelation of his desire and delight for people. His goodness draws us to repentance. And it's recognizing that while we're even yet sinners, Christ died for us. That God so loved the world that he gave Jesus. You get it? He loved us when we were saying no so much to, 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 to give Jesus for us. How much more now that, he, that you've said yes? It's real, and that's Christianity 101, that in light of your weak and immature state, which is real, he still says you're beautiful. And the value that the Lord places on the inner desire for righteousness, we don't esteem it properly. She says, I'm dark, but he calls me lovely. She says, I'm like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. The tents of Kedar, simple analogy. This is a a simple metaphor. They were tanned tents that were dark on the outside, but on the inside is where they they lived, and it was a a much nicer looking place than what was on the outside. The the curtains of Solomon are the curtains of the, the inner courts of the temple where it's pure and holy. She goes, I'm on the outside, it's obvious, I'm evident, I'm spiritually weak and immature, but on the inside, there's a righteous yes that he sees. I'm dark but lovely, it's real. Verse 6, now this is where most of us are. In our darkness, we say, don't look at me, don't look at me. 
shame. See, most of us, we don't go, I'm dark but lovely. We go, I'm dark and ugly. And don't look at me. She says, I'm dark but lovely, but don't look at me. She's dealing with shame. Do not look upon me because I am dark. She says, my mother's sons, here's why. Here's what's happened to me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. What she's describing is this. She's describing she's given herself in ministry, worked really hard for others, but she didn't take care of her own heart. Let me be clear with you. Spiritual burnout happens when you push hard in ministry for others without tending your own heart of intimacy with God. That's it. Spiritual burnout doesn't come from working hard. It comes from working hard and neglecting your own heart with Jesus. That's where people get burned out. People go, I'm fasting and praying and reading the word too much. I go, that won't burn you out. Seeking Jesus won't burn you out. What will burn you out is doing a bunch of work for other people, but not tending the heart of your, the garden of your own heart. You can do it in IHOP. You can do a bunch of sets on the platform, work in a bunch of ministries, a bunch of environments, and you're not actually dialing in on the inside and tending your own heart, your own garden before God. I've seen it. I've watched it. People doing 24 hours a week in the prayer room, burning out because they're doing it as a work for others and not tending their own garden. Man, it's heartbreaking. You can do that in any form or fashion anywhere. And that's the core reality. She's working hard for other people, serving, 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 not tending her own heart. Now, the issue isn't don't serve. Well... The issue is, yeah, work hard and serve and tend your own garden. The issue is that she didn't tend her own garden. And in that place of burning out on the inside, a bunch of people in the church got mad at her. That's what happened. She said, my mother's sons were angry with me. So she's got this spiritual crisis. She goes, I'm burned out. I'm working really hard. My own heart is a mess. And I got a bunch of people mad at me. Don't even look at me. Don't even look at me. I've made some bad mistakes. It's not going well. I made some bad choices. I burnt myself out, and now people are frustrated with me. Don't even look at me. Man, I've seen that in church ministry. I've been in church ministry since 1994, full-time. I've seen that so many times. The guy gets working hard. He sits burning out. He makes some bad choices in sin. Few people get upset with him, and dude goes, just don't even, I don't want to come anymore. That's the potion for backsliding right there. And now I hear people 20 years later, they go, I'm trying to figure out how to do church again. I go, look, don't figure out how to do church. Just fall back in love with Jesus. Fall back in love with Jesus. Tend your own garden, and he'll direct you into the church. He, He loves the church. The church is his. Church is his bride. He'll direct you into the church. That's not the biggest issue. The issue is tend your garden first. So she's going to ask him, now what do I do? Verse 7, look at it right there, page 2. And she's going to tell him how to get, him, how to get reconnected. How to get reconnected in the church. 
Verse 7. Tell me, are you whom I love? Where do you feed your flock? She goes, I need to be fed. Where do you make it rest at noon? Why should I be as one who veils herself by the flocks of your companion? So she's turning to him. She's saying, how do I get rid of the burnout? How do I get fed and nourished and rest in you? How does my heart come alive again in you? Where, what's the answer here? I'm, I'm hungry for you. I want you. I'm just, ah, oh, I don't even want to be looked at. I'm in shame here. What's the answer? What do I do? And she's, she's coming out of a sincere heart for righteousness, and she's asking for Jesus to restore her. Verse 2, it's like she's saying, I mean, and number 2 under C, it's like she's saying this, I want something real with you. I don't want to be veiled anymore. Notice, notice, she's veiling herself. Why should I be as one who veils myself? See, in our sin and our choices against you know, righteousness and our immaturity, we get into shame, and then what do we do? I'm not worthy. And we put a veil over ourselves. He's not veiling her. She's veiling herself. You see that? Man, I've seen that play out so many times in 20 years of ministry. People step into sin and shame, bad choices, and they just veil themselves, not recognizing he's going, there's, there's something legit on the inside of you. There's a yes inside of you. He goes, I'm calling forth on that. That lean for righteousness. I see the truth of who you are on the inside. Don't veil yourself. I love, uh, I mean, I don't love it when people backslide. But when people backslide, I love the idea that when the guy has been sincere, prayed all these prayers, Jesus, I'm asking you to just, just change me, transform me. I just want all of you. I want you to have all of me. And then maybe the guy gets, you know, goes into a backslidden state. And I think always about how our prayers are eternal language before the throne, that they actually get stored before the throne. And the guy's out there running from Jesus. Meanwhile, all the prayers that he prayed to be wholehearted for God are up there before the throne, echoing around the throne room. His own prayers are working against him in his backslidden state. I love that. I love, his, I love God's faithfulness in that. And then the Lord is faithful to say yes to the, the, that inner reach of righteousness, to pull him back into fellowship. Don't want to get off too much on that. Anyway, that's what she's asking. She's saying, I don't want to live at a distance. That's what it is. By the flocks of your companions. She goes, there's people that are, that are your friends. And, and I don't want to be veiled and distant from you and just hear about those that are close to you and what their relationship with you is like. I don't want to hear another testimony of someone else who's encountered you. I want to encounter you for real. And I don't want to be veiled anymore. I want to get out of the shame. I want to get out of this, this place of darkness. And I, I just want to, I want to rest in you. I want to be alive in you again. That's what she's saying. I don't want to be distant. I don't want to just hear the testimony from someone else. I'd say that idea has compelled me in much of my life not being satisfied just with someone else's testimony of intimacy and encounter with God. You know, we get those, we get them all, we get the testimony, man, this guy really had an encounter. And I say yes and amen to it. But I, I don't want to just hear the story about someone else who got in. Who got the encounter. 
And that's where she's at. She goes, I don't want to just be over there by the flocks of your companions, the ones that are, that are dear and near to you. I want to be one of them. I don't want to be veiled and behind shame anymore. I want something real. I don't want to be at a distance. Verse 8, here's his instruction. He's so tender. He's so tender. Look at this. I love this. He goes, if you don't know of fairest among women, he goes, you're beautiful to me. She goes, I'm in shame. Don't look at me. He goes, you're beautiful. <laughs> look, when you blow it, you're messed up and you're in the middle of your darkness. Read that verse right there, verse 8. He goes, fairest among women. You go, no, couldn't be. I'm, I'm horrible. I'm, look, I'm horrible. He goes, come here, fairest among women. He goes, you're beautiful. He sees the yes on the inside. He goes, you're beautiful. Can't be. You think, can't be. I'm horrible. He goes, no. I said, beautiful. He goes, I call that dark but lovely. It's real. It's real. I see the sincere yes, and I say you're beautiful. He goes, if you don't know, here's the instruction. If you don't know, fairest among women, follow in the footsteps of the flock. Follow in the footsteps of the flock and feed your little goats beside the shepherd's tents. What does that mean? That's figurative language. What does it mean? He's giving her three ways that she can be restored and get back into fellowship. A, find yourself in fellowship with other believers. That's what the first thing he goes. He goes, what you got to do, get in the footsteps of the flock. Wherever the people are encountering me, get in there. Don't be that person out by yourself trying to figure it all out on your own lonesome. It won't work. It won't work. Most of the time, that person that's in broken, burned out state and in shame and a little bitter at the church, and they're out there by themselves trying to figure it all out on their own, and I'm just, you know, those people over there, they're mad at me, and I'm just not serving Jesus, and I want to serve Jesus, but I don't want to serve his people. and The reason why they stay in that place of bitterness and shame and all that, that inner just, because they won't actually just get into real fellowship. We are created to be in fellowship with one another. He didn't ever, ever make one of us to be Lone Ranger Christians. He never made any of us to be all on our own. First thing is get around other people that are encountering me. Get in the footsteps of the flock. Wow. Second thing, get under spiritual covering of the shepherds. He goes, if you don't know, follow in the footsteps of the flock, feed your little goats beside the shepherd's tents. You got to get by the shepherd's tents. You actually got to get under spiritual authority. Spiritual authority has gotten a bad rap. Jesus set up the kingdom. He is a king. He set up the kingdom with real lines of spiritual authority. It's real. Now, if spiritual authority is abusive, it, it is. It, it just, it, at times it has been. Uh, if it is, it is. And the Lord can even work in that. He can even work through that. And we'll find that out in chapter 5. But he requires the body to operate within the lines of authority that he's called us to. So you get where people are encountering Jesus in spiritual authority. That's what he actually calls her to do by the shepherd's tent. And then three, nurture other believers. She's feed your, feed your little lambs. 
your little goats. The idea is this. Get into fellowship where God is. Get under spiritual authority in that place. Begin to encounter the Lord in that place. And then just start sharing it with others. Just get yourself in that cycle of flowing together in fellowship with others. And feeding others, discipling others. Look at verse 9. That's his instructions to her, to get her back on that path, to get out of shame, to step through it, get into encounter, get in fellowship, under spiritual authority, and get nurturing others. Flowing with your heart, alive, and then just sharing that with others. Verse 9, and look what he says to her. She hasn't done any of it yet, but look what he says to her. I have compared you, my love, to my filly among Pharaoh's chariots. I, that, I don't know why. I'm not particularly a horse guy. But that phrase has always resonated with me. I'll, I'll break it down for you in a minute. It's always ministered to me. It's a, such a great phrase. My filly among Pharaoh's chariots. I just, I don't, I know what it means. And so it's actually touching me as I'm saying it. I'll, I'll say it to you in a minute. Okay. Verse 10. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments. Your neck with chains of gold. Verse 15. Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair, You have dove's eyes. Flip on over to page three. First thing I want to take note is, she hadn't done anything he's told her to do yet. He's not responding to her because she's perfectly now positioned by the shepherd's tents, feeding her little goats. She hadn't done anything. He's He's still in the same breath that he was before, instructing her. And look how he's doing it. Listen. God is tender toward us in our weaknesses. Drawing us back because of love. He desires us and highly esteems the yes on the inside, even in our darkness. And his message to you in that place of darkness, in that place of foolishness, his message to you is, you are beautiful, my love. You're like my filly among Pharaoh's chariots. You have dove's eyes. His his message is tender. And it's always flowing from a heart of desire and and the truth of, of his absolute pleasure with us, even in our weakness. This is who he is. That is what compels us out of that dark and weak state. That's what compels us into intimacy. Look at A on page three, top. Jesus affirms to her that she is indeed beautiful to him despite her spiritual crisis. Multiple times through four verses, I count nine if you just break it down. Multiple times through four verses, he affirms her of her beauty and his desire for her. Fairest among women. He goes, I've compared you, my love, I love you, to my filly among Pharaoh's chariots. He goes, that phrase means you're my favorite. He goes, your cheeks are lovely, With ornaments, your emotions, they move me. I'm going to break all that down in a minute. Your neck is lovely with chains of gold. He goes, I love the lean of your heart. He goes, behold, you're fair, my love. You are fair. I mean, he's just blowing up with this. When you imagine Jesus talking to you in your broken, dark, burned out state, do you imagine him going, man, you're beautiful. I mean, beautiful. Wow, beauty. Woo. Do you imagine him doing that? Or do you imagine him going, eh, so dirty, 
get up. Get up. If you don't get up, I'll help you. Ugh, I don't even like you. I mean, how do you imagine him? Mostly we imagine him like number two. We think of him, if we're going to put it into Cinderella terms, we think of him more like the wicked stepmother and less like Prince Charming. Ugh, covered in ashes. Do some work and I'll like you. No. Instead, he sees us in our ashen state and goes, you are beautiful. We go, how could you? He goes, I see beyond what's on the outside. I see what's on the inside. Beautiful. I love you. You're fair, my love. You're fair. You're my favorite. My love, you're beautiful. That's the way he talks to you. When you're you're coming back and you're in that place of brokenness, and you're turning back to him, his word to you is, ah, I love you, come back. You're beautiful, come back. I want you, come back. That's what compels me to stay out of it to begin with. You get it? The destruction of sin, yes, that is a deterrent. But the lavish tenderness of his love towards me That's better than wine. That's what keeps me out of it. I mean, I'm I'm dopey, so sometimes I need the revelation of the deterrent, the negative side. But nine times out of ten, no, it's the beauty of the way he thinks and feels about me. That's what keeps me out of it. That's what keeps me flowing with him. It's in, in in the... face of my own weakness and maturity goes beautiful I love you you're fair and what happens is and I don't have the time to break it down for us but in the midst of that going on where he's saying all these things to her about how awesome she is she begins to spontaneously erupt and worship back to him she begins to to describe him and his beauty and her desire for him. Now let's look at each one of these uh, metaphors just as we're closing. Each metaphor, it's got specific meaning. Philly among Pharaoh's chariots. If you want, just write out next to it my, my favorite my favorite. Here's what it is. Philly among Pharaoh's chariots. Pharaoh had the nicest horses in the world at that time. Solomon was the richest king in the world at that time. Pharaoh's horses were sought after by everybody because they were the best. And Solomon owned a bunch of them because with his wealth he was able to. And so what he just said to her is this. Of all my choice uh, horses that I've received, they're the best in the world, I have a favorite one. I have a mare, and it's my favorite one. He goes, when I think of you, that mare, that's my favorite one, that's what I'm thinking of. He goes, you're my favorite one. You're my choice one. 
You're my filly among Pharaoh's chariots. And I know that, like, I'm not even a horse guy. That doesn't connect to some people. But for some reason, I can take that phrase and I can walk around in the prayer room and I'll just start dialoguing. I'm your filly? He goes, my filly. Billy the filly. Yes. Yes. Filly Billy. And I'll just sit there and take that. I don't know how you do. That's how I do. He likes my jokes. Remember that. And I will just sit there and carry that around and go, you, like, you really like me because you have no idea. You have no idea. You're my favorite. I'm your favorite. Like me, broken dummy. I'm your favorite. He's my favorite. And I'm just telling you, you get that little whisper, that once, just in that quiet place, you get that one whisper, you're my filly. Oh. That, that, I don't know how it works for you. I'll get one whisper like that from the Lord, and for an hour, I'm messed up in the place of prayer. That will carry me an hour in encounter. You're my filly. You're my favorite. You're my favorite. I go, yes, Lord, I'm your favorite. And I'll tell you, for years, I would say, I'd say that because I knew that's what it meant. I go, yeah, I'm his favorite. And I, on the inside, I'd go, Rrr. I'm clearly not his favorite. I'm like a millionth place on the favorite list. And after a while, just meditating in that verse, just staying with it. I go, no, no, he's really saying that about me. And it's not that anyone's better than anyone. We're all his favorite. But that's the point. He goes, when I think of you, I think of the most choice. When I think of you, I think of you as the most sought after. You're my favorite. And I go, I'm your favorite, Lord. Yes. Beloved, take that into prayer. 10, verse 10. He says, your cheeks are lovely with ornaments. It's speaking of the emotions. The cheeks, your face, reveals your emotions. Your cheeks uh, unveil your emotional state. He goes, I see your cheeks, and they're adorned with these ornaments. They're beautiful. What's he saying? He says, your emotions are responding to my beauty that I've given you. The ornaments are like a gift that he's given her. So he goes, your emotions, the fact that my love moves your heart, he goes, That's beautiful to me. The fact that you value my love, the fact that your emotions are moved by me, he goes, that moves me. Your emotions, the inner desires that you have for me, the passion of your heart for me, he goes, oh, it moves me. It's beautiful. I love that. And if you can just take that out a notch and you just go, oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. When I love you, you love it. He goes, yes. I go, okay, wait, let me try this out. Let's see, okay. I love you. And I go, did I feel anything? Well, wait, I don't know. I love you. Well, I didn't feel anything, but what does it say? It says, your, your cheeks are lovely, your emotions are lovely. I go, but you love that. Oh, my goodness. I'm moving your heart by my emotions. When I love you, it moves you. He goes, Yeah. Even in my immature state, he goes, yes. Even in my weak way, he goes, yes. Your emotions are lovely to me. The way you feel about me, it moves me. And when you think that through about how your emotions can move the heart of the uncreated God, 
I don't know what you're going to spend your time doing, but that will call you into prayer. That my devotion, my emotions towards you move you. Okay, I can do this. I can do this. I can love you with my whole heart knowing that it's impacting the way you feel. Yeah, he goes, your cheeks are lovely. See, the ornaments are like the gift he's given and our cheeks responding, our emotions responding to his grace. That's the idea. See, your neck is lovely with chains of gold. See, the neck speaks of a person's will. You know, stiff-necked is stubborn and rebellious. But he says, your neck is lovely. Your neck is beautiful. He goes, your will, the lean of your heart, it's beautiful to me. Again, same idea. Your emotions are beautiful. Your will is beautiful. You are beautiful. That's the way the Lord sees you and speaks to you. And finally, you have dove's eyes. You have dove's eyes. Doves are monogamous birds. They mate once in their life. They also have monocular vision, which means this, that their, their eyes are on the sides. They're on the side of their head. They can only look at one thing at one time. It's kind of an interesting bird. You know, I'm going to look at you with both eyes. i got to do that. Well, the thing is this. They, uh, each eye is fixed, so they, they can only see one thing at one time with each eye. And so he's saying that, that she is faithful and fixed upon him. When he says, you have dove's eyes, he says, I see the faithfulness on the inside of you. And I see that your heart is for me. That there's a truth inside that you want me. He goes, you have dove's eyes to my love. Even in our weakness, he's calling out that virtue. You're beautiful, I love you, and you're faithful to me. That's the way he's approaching us. Most Christians, in a weak state, in a state of compromise, they imagine themselves to be rebellious and, and, and uh, you know, unworthy. And, and man, that's it. I, comm- I, I, I committed the, un, un, uh, the unforgivable sin. No, what he's saying is there's, there's a real truth of righteousness on the inside of you, and I'm calling that forth from you right now. I see you as faithful. I see you as beautiful. You have dove's eyes. You're my filly. You're beautiful. You're all fair, my love. I think it's important to recognize that that's his statement to her in that weak and darkened state. Oh, beloved. Do you know what it means when we understand that we've got a God that loves us like this? You can't lose with him. You can't lose with him. Just keep saying yes, you can't lose. You fall down, get up. You can't lose. Mess up, come back. You can't lose. You can't lose with him. He's never rejecting. He's always calling forth who you are on the inside. You cannot lose with him. This is it, beloved. This is the love that compels. Understanding the way God thinks and feels about us. That's so critical to our journey. Amen.